Well, let's pray. Holy Father, as we approach Your revelation, we do so with humility, recognizing our own need to seek Your interpretation of what we read and study. We thank You for all the teachers and tools with which You have provided us. Yet, we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we might see wonderful truths from Your Word. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. But the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to her, him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, beloved, we move from the narrative portions of Daniel to the uh, vision portions of Daniel. That does not mean that the chapters are unrelated. In fact, both structurally and linguistically, chapters 1 to 6 and chapters 7 to 12 are interrelated and connected. The chapters, as I told you before, form a chiasm. Remember what a chiasm is? If the letter key is, makes an X. And so if you look at, uh, if you look at it this way, uh, A, uh, there's exile to the unclean realm of the dead, uh, that is Babylon, chapter 1. Uh, B, four kingdoms followed by the kingdom of God, chapter 2. C, deliverance of the trusting from the fiery furnace, chapter 3. D, humbling of proud King Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 4. D sub 1, humbling the humbling of proud King Belshazzar. C sub 1, devil, deliverance of the trusting from the lion's den. B sub 1, four kingdoms followed by the kingdom of God, chapter 7 and 9. A sub 1, return from exile and resurrection from the dead. So if you put those on a piece of paper and you write them that way, A, B, C, D, and then put down another D and then come back C, B, A, it makes X. That's what a chiasm is. Uh, people have approached the structure of Daniel in different ways, but they all usually come, or at least most usually come up with the chiasm. Well, the structure is informed not only by the arrangement of material, but concepts that appear in earlier chapters appear in later ones and vice versa, or versa visa, whichever one it is. What this means is that contrary to the Enlightenment-informed critics, this book is an intricate whole. It could not have been stitched together by a variety of editors, which is what the liberals say. 
It is not, as the higher critics posit, a work of a work emanating from the Maccabean period, which would be one the one sixties, around two hundred, somewhere in there. Um, rather, the book is what it claims to be—a book written in the sixth century. The book covers the seventy years of Judean captivity from in Babylon, roughly six hundred nine B.C. to five thirty nine B.C. The first six chapters comprise narratives of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They also present narrative related to two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and his grandson, Belshazzar. From a redemptive historic perspective, these, the chapters represent the ongoing struggle of the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent, which is revealed, first of all, in Genesis 3.15. So... Everything in Daniel is going to focus on that idea of the kingdom of, of this world, or the kingdom of Satan, or the kingdom of darkness, or the city of man, opposed to the kingdom of God. Um, and all the chapters uh, focus on that in one way or another, and they use a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism, and there's a lot of different uh, interpretations, and you, know, you get a bunch of different interpretations. People think they got it all figured out and uh, um, personally I don't have it all figured out. But we can summarize the book of Daniel as God uh, of God presenting the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. In chapter 7 to 12 the visions represent the history of the world from Daniel's time to the consummation of the kingdom of God. That's what we have in Daniel chapter 7. Today I want to bring three points to your attention. First, I want to correlate the beasts in Daniel 7 with the great uh, statue of Daniel chapter 2. Second, I want to point out some details about the Son of Man that comes up in this chapter. And then third, I I want you to observe Daniel's response as a warning about end time sensationalism. First then, uh, consider the correlation of the beasts with the statue in chapter 12. We read in chapter 7, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. The first year, Daniel recorded the end of Belshazzar's reign in chapter 6. But here he reports something that occurred before that time. We might ask ourselves, why? Well, I believe he does so to keep with his structure. He records the narrative portions relative to Babylon in the first six chapters. And in the last six chapters, he records visions that have to do with the entire sweep of world history. There may be other reasons, but for right now, that one I think is adequate. The translation, he told the sum of the matter... Um, has been translated in other ways, but they all kind of mean the same thing. Um, But if you listen to these different translations, it might help you understand what it means. He wrote the sum of the matter. One version has it, the New New English translation says he wrote down the dream in summary fashion. Um, The NIV from the United Kingdom is that he wrote down the substance of his dream. And the NIV in America, United States, he wrote down the substance of his dream, same thing. Um, And then the New King James Version is my favorite. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. 
I like that translation the best because it makes uh, makes a lot of good sense. Well, then we read, and then there were four great beasts who came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Now this corresponds, I believe, with uh, chapter 2 when Daniel says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, the image of... The image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine, was of fine gold. That's um, that's Daniel's. Uh, I believe that those are two talking about the same thing. Now, um, I wanted to make a comment about the sea. What is the raging sea all about? The way it's described is you had the four winds of of uh, the earth. Uh, churning up the sea. I don't know if you've ever seen a churned up sea. Um, I watched a boat race one time on uh, on television where they went through, uh, they went around the Cape, uh, they went around uh, the Horn of Africa and across the Indian Ocean and all of that. And uh, when you got to that part of, uh, of the Indian Ocean, um, I believe that's what it was. When you got to that part of the of the ocean, the sea was just churning all over the place. It wasn't caused by the wind either. It was this churning sea that was caused by the melting ice coming up from Antarctica and and colliding with the warm water uh, of, of the Indian Ocean. And when when they when it, when they met, it just started churning up the water. And when I looked at that, I thought I would not want to be in a in a sailboat out in that water, but people went out there, you know, and they they were able to do it. Um, but this actually is describing something similar to that churning up of water. But um, think of the, you know, like uh, I don't know if you remember the Mickey Mouse uh, movie. What was it? The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Mm-hmm. You remember when he was stirring up the waters and it was they were going real high and everything. That's kind of what is described here. Well, what does it mean, though? What does it refer to? Well, most people believe that the churning of the seas that are, that's there, the roaring seas, is actually just a reference to the nations. The nations in, um, in uh, rebellion uh, against God. And uh, one place you see that is in Isaiah chapter 17, verse 12, where we read, Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of, of mighty waters. Um, and so that's probably what's in view uh, is that uh, you're seeing the kingdoms of this world uh, in rebellion against God. Well, the lion and the eagle, they really do represent uh, the domains of animals and birds. And uh, the lion is the king of the jungle, right? Yes. And uh, the eagle is the king of the birds, right? You're talking about the, the, the top of the cream of the crop there. Well, lions is a typical ancient Near Eastern image of 
of nations or of kingdoms. For example, in Jeremiah 4.7, we read, A lion has gone up from his thicket, and a destroyer of nations has set out. He has, he has gone out from his place to make war, to make your land a waste. Your cities will be in ruins without inhabitant. Uh, so you're talking about a nation that's coming up against Jer- Jerusalem, which was Babylon. Um, again, in Jeremiah 49, uh, Behold, one will come up like a lion from the thickets of the Jordan. Um, and even Assyria is described as a lion. In Jeremiah 50, verse 17, Israel is a scattered flock. The lions have driven them away. The first one who devoured him was the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria was a lion. And the last one who has broken his bones is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So what you're dealing with there is the kingdom of, uh, of Babylon. The lion represents that. And this beast, this lion with eagle's wings, uh, the wings are stripped off of it and he's made to stand up like a man. He's given the mind of a man. Um, he's given feet like a man. And, um, and it correlates to uh, the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It also relates to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had been driven into the wild to live like an animal as punishment for his pride. Remember that? He, yeah. He was driven into. So so what you have here is an example of the intricacy of the book of Daniel. The beast represents the empire of Babylon just as the head of gold represented the, the kingdom of Babylon in chapter 2. <laughs> and then we read, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth. Uh, between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. I believe this corresponds to the chest of and arms of silver in Daniel chapter 2, verse 32. Why is the bear pictured like that, raised up on one side? Well, the bear's positioned, it seems, to lunge at its prey, or maybe possibly to run after its prey. A uh, bear will stand up on two on its back legs when, when it uh, attacks, and so, um, uh, so that might be what it's what's envisioned there. But it is going to devour. Um, as I said, there's a variety of interpretations. But again, the bear is powerful. It's uh, like the first beast, but it's not like the first beast. It's not. It's not the same. Um, correlated to the chest and arms of silver in chapter 2. And what you appear to have is two kingdoms of great power. But one power, the lion with the wings turned into a man, is greater than the second power, just like the head of gold is greater than the arms and chest of silver. After that, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And yet, uh, and then we read in Daniel chapter 2.39, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. It's going to arise. So you see, you've got that correlation again between this uh, chapter 7 and chapter 2. Again, you have gold, silver, bronze. You keep diminishing in value. Uh, and diminishing in, um, I wouldn't say diminishing in strength, but diminishing in purity, right? You're moving down, uh, down, the, down the list here in metals. Well, in this way, you have like a leopard. Well, now, why does the leopard have four wings of a bird on its back? 
Folks, I'm going to tell you, there, there are a variety of interpretations of this, and um, uh, if you have one, then you'll just add to the, add to the mix. But um, the four heads, what are those? Well, this kingdom, as uh, we'll see, is the kingdom of Greece. And the, the, the point is that the kingdom of Greece was divided into four kingdoms after Alexander the Great died. And uh, the, the idea of a leopard, a leopard is a very speedy animal. He's very quick. And so the idea is, is like, well, that's what Alexander was like. He was like a leopard. When he took the Persian Empire, he didn't take a whole lot of time to do it. He was, uh, the, those Greeks that came, that army that came and destroyed the Persians was a ferocious army. There were times when Alexander's men were outnumbered 30 to 1. And they took the Persian Empire. You know why? Because there was a mentality of Alexander was one. He knew how to fight. He knew how to take an army and split it in half, no matter how big, and get it. That's what I read. You know, that he could, he had this ability. But they were, they were just, they were, they were, they had, they were courageous, you know. They were going to win or die, and uh, they did win, and uh, their kingdom then took over that area. And then after this, I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Well, this corresponds to what I believe, or what others believe, I should say, are the legs of iron and feet partly of iron and partly of clay, of Daniel chapter 2, verse 33. And the reason they correlate that, you know, with, uh, with the feet is because this beast had ten horns, right? Feet have ten toes. So uh, there's, there's a correlate, at least it's an implied correlation there. Again, um, various interpretations, but I, I tend to agree with those say that this represents the Roman Empire. Well, those kingdoms all come and go with the exception of the last one. The Roman Empire doesn't really end. If you read the last part of chapter 7, um, this fourth kingdom on the earth, beginning in verse 23, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. So it's eleven, there's eleven horns. And he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear down, wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away and uh, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdoms and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom 
shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So this fourth kingdom has these kings. Are there ten literal kings? Um, If you push all of this stuff literally, you're going to have to do a lot of gymnastics to identify these kings. Okay, and people do that. I'm just telling you they do. I mean, I've listened to YouTube's. I went to a school where they taught me all this stuff, um, and they just they just do whatever they can to identify all these kings. And what happens is they all agree that it's the Roman Empire. They don't all agree about who these ten kings are. Actually, there's eleven, but there's ten who arise, and then the eleven one comes. He's got the mouth. Some people identify him as the Antichrist. Um, if anything, he is Antichrist-like. But all these, uh, these, these, these ten horns, these ten kings that arise, um, what people do is they say, well, there was these kings, and then another one's going to come, and so there's going to be a reconstituted Roman Empire. That's what I was taught. That the the Roman Empire would be reconstituted in the last days before Christ returned, and that's what that's what that kingdom is. I think that's a stretch. Not only the imagination, but it's a stretch of the text. It's better to just leave it as it is and say, you know, I don't really know. What's happening is that the we could. I think I would say this: the Roman Empire never really did end. It ended in terms of its um, having Caesar. But did it ever end? Well, in this sense, it didn't. Its influence and ideas has never ended. We still live in light of them. Okay, Encyclopedia Britannica. I forget which year it was. I have to find it. But if you look at its article on the Roman Empire, all it says is that we live in the Roman Empire now. That's what it says. Yeah. So if other people thought that, you know, they think that, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not smart enough to figure all this out. What I am smart enough, I think, to figure out is this. If you compare chapter 2 with chapter 7, what you see is a kingdom that's united on th- at three places. The Medes are the, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, who took over much more, uh, much more of the world than than the Babylonian kingdom had. And if then if you look at Greece, which took over all the Persian Empire, but when you get to the Roman Empire, you begin to see division. And when you get to the toes of clay and iron, what does that describe? Mm-hmm. It describes division. Yes. You, you have two things that mix and they don't mix well. So I think what you're looking... To me, what I'm looking at when I read this is that we're moving from a world that has united empires to a world that has divided empires and we are living in a divided empire right this minute. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that this is the empire. I'm just saying this is an example, right? Mm-hmm. How much... You know, Rome when it broke up, how many states or how many countries in Europe did you end up with? 
you know, with a bunch. You had the Holy Roman Empire, the Pope oversaw that, but there was still, they were still all their own little countries. Um, the King of France had to get permission. Uh, he needed money to fight the war. And so uh, this was the time of Luther. And the Lutherans in Germany wanted to, uh, you know, they wanted to have a council. And the king said, well, no, I don't want to have a council. And they said, oh, I need the money for the war, you know. It's a, so they did this little trade-off. <laughs> um, the, in Germany, under Luther, they were first, that was the first time people were called Protestants. That's where the word comes from. But you see, they had to play these games, right? Because they were fighting other countries. France is fighting this one, that one's fighting this. And um, so that's kind of what I see as I look at these things. Um, that you, you have kingdoms going from, from being strong and united to kingdoms being um, weak and divided. And, um, and so that's not a real thorough explanation of all these uh, things, and I can't offer you one today. I wish I could, but I'm not even going to try. I can only give you those, those highlights that I've, uh, that I've seen. So that brings me to the second, the second point I want to draw your attention to, and that is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. The word, the phrase Son of Man occurs 93 times in the book of Ezekiel. It occurs some 58 times in the book of Mark. In the Gospels, there's only one person who ever uses the phrase Son of Man, and that's Jesus. So, that idea, Son of Man, comes, especially when we're talking about riding on clouds, that comes from Daniel. And uh, Jesus does refer to Daniel on more than one occasion. But here you see the Son of Man approaching the eight ends of days riding on a cloud, right? Now, there's a question that you have to answer. Where is he coming from? <laughs> he's the son of man, and so if he's a son of man, that means he has all the attributes of man. Just like somebody says you're the son of Satan, that means you have the attributes of Satan. Or if somebody says you're the son of a... A fool, that means that you have the same attributes. I mean, that's just what it means. He's the son of man, and so he's really a man. But he's riding on the clouds, right? He's riding on the clouds. The only person I know of who rides on the clouds in the Old Testament is, is God himself. Yes. So you have this... Um, Excuse me. Why is she calling me here? Molly. So you, what was I saying? Clouds. Yeah, right on clouds. So, so here is this, this son of man, who's, that's what he is, he's a man, human, but he's right on the clouds of heaven, which implies that he's not only human, he's, he's divine. But the question is, where is he coming from? I think the answer is he's coming from he's coming from earth 
after his resurrection and ascension. And the reason I think that is this. In Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to him, when the Pharisees asked her, the, the, the priests asked him, you know, who are you and all that? Are you the Christ? And he said, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, the, of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And at that point, the priest tore his clothes and cried blasphemy. Okay? In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now the cloud also has, it's not only related to the clouds of heaven in that sense, it's also related to the cloud when the sacrifice is given. So we've got to look at that a little more another time, but not today. Paul writes, I do not cease giving to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the, in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. So when did Jesus sit at the right hand of the Father? If you look here in the book of Daniel, we're going to see him sitting at the right hand of the Father, but there's not any mention per se of the crucifixion. So where did he come from? Well, I believe he came from earth. He came after he was crucified and raised from the dead. And so what does that what does that <clears throat> what does that tell us? It tells us that we're already in the kingdom of God. Okay? But the kingdom of God hasn't been given to the saints yet. So we're in this time where we already have the kingdom of God, but we're all but we're expecting the kingdom of God. So it's called the already and the not yet. We're already kingdom, we already have the kingdom, but we don't have it in its fullness. Well, Christ is seated on the on the right hand of the Father. He's seated there. First Corinthians fifteen. He's he's uh, he's putting all of his enemies under his feet. He's doing that right now. And after he has put them all under his feet, then he's going to deliver the kingdom up to the Father, and uh, the God's going to be all in all. So that's well, already Jesus is doing that, but it's not yet been consummated. So we live in this already, and not yet. Situation. Christ is depicted in Daniel 7 as going to the Father and being seated at His right hand. 
And Jesus said that this is what took place after His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Therefore, Daniel is depicting the reign of Christ as it is now. Further, Daniel states that Christ's kingdom will have a period of time during which the last kingdom will persecute the church and almost prevail, but will ultimately be destroyed. Listen. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. How much time is that? I don't know. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And then the kingdom and dominion of and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to who? The people of the saints of the Most High. So, I don't know everything about this, but what I do know is that what appears to me is that you have the kingdom of Christ established when he sat at the Father's right hand. We have a wait time where we're waiting for the consummation. And during that time, the little horn with the big mouth (laughs) is going to wear out the saints. He's going to wear us out. Well, that brings me to the last point, Daniel's response. Daniel says in verse 15 and 16, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made made known to me the interpretation of the things. Daniel approaches it with humility. He doesn't get it all, so he asks for help. And then verse 28, here is the end of the matter. This is it. This is, the end of the, this is the end of the matter for right now, he's saying. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Well, yeah, if I saw that, my color would change too. I think that means he got pale or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, but Daniel demonstrates a humility that the church needs. What he saw was disturbing, to say the least, but we should learn something from, from him. And I want to mention two things. First, don't fall into the trap that so many have fallen into. There are conferences on the end times. People have spent their lives trying to pinpoint the date of Christ's return. Yes. The book of Daniel is crucial to their interpretations. For example, when I was in college... The big uh, book that was being pushed was oh, yeah. the late great planet Earth, yep. and um, and it was and this is what it and, and it was republished in 2009. So they just revised it. Oh, so goodness. you know nothing ever worked out according to the first one. So the second one we do a revision, and then we have it. It's stated it's a guide to finding the future in the text of the Bible. Argues many of the predictions made in the Old and New Testaments, the rebirth of Israel nation of Israel, unrest in the Middle East. Yeah, that's been going on a while. How long has that been going on anyway? Um, 
and uh, the revival of interest in Satanism have come true. Well, pick a time when that isn't true. That's right. That's all I, I just wonder. Tell me a time when that wasn't true. Yep. Then you have the end times prophecy, ancient wisdom for uncertain times. I think this is by John Walberg. War and terror in the Middle East, natural disasters and economic toil, turmoil. The Bible predicted it all. But what does it mean? In this revised, comprehensive classic to the end times, one of the world's greatest interpreters, greatest interpreters of biblical prophecy, gives us insight into how the past, present, and future fit together into an amazing divine design. It takes you verse by verse through hundreds of key prophecies from Genesis to Revelation. It gives detailed insight into the prophecies that have been fulfilled and the ones still to come. It places each event in historical context. I don't know how you... How did he do that? Offers solid scriptural evidence for every interpretation. Reminds us uh, why the Bible is the ultimate source of meaning. Well, I'll need that to tell me the Bible's ultimate source of meaning. Then there was uh, another book by him that was uh, published called... (laughs) These books have been published and republished, revised. This one was Armageddon. Oil and the Middle East Crisis, what the Bible says about the future of the Middle East and the end of Western civilization. I think you could have looked at that title and if you thought about it for a minute, you might be able to write that book without reference to the scripture. The end of Western civilization. I mean, we, to, use, to, use, to use the phrase from Daniel, from Daniel 6, the writing is on the wall. Right. We have been weighed in the balance. And well, then there was uh, Edgar Wizen, Wizen, Wizenant. 1988. 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. How about that one? And then it didn't come out, and so he wrote another one in 1989 called The Final Shout, Rapture Report 1989. That didn't work out. So in 1993, he wrote 23 reasons why a pre-tribulation rapture looks like it will occur on Rosh Hoshana 1993. So we would, 1988, 1989, 1993, well, that wasn't again. That wasn't enough. 1994. And now the Earth's destruction by fire, nuclear bomb fire. Now, I guess he would have kept writing, but he passed away. God love him. He was trying to deal with the Bible. You know, at least... Um, Harold Camping, before he died, said, I should never have written those books about the future, about oh. the end times. Hallelujah. At least you had that. Yeah. Well, then secondly, Daniel clearly states that the people of God will undergo a severe trial. We in the USA have not had to face persecution. Our Puritan forefathers did when they lived in England. Uh, during the Reformation, many Protestants suffered persecution at the hands of both Roman Catholic clergy and Roman Catholic monarchs. But we have lived a life of ease when it comes to practicing our faith. That's not the case for so many in other parts of the world. I, I have an app on my phone for Open Doors. And Open Doors always sends me, they send me prayer requests and I don't know if I can get it on my phone without messing up the computer, but for example, in Yemen, everybody's a, everybody's a Muslim in Yemen. 
The problem is not everybody is a Muslim in Yemen. So what do they do? Well, they have to practice their faith in private. They have to do it in secret. And if they're caught, they could face death. How about that? You're not a, you're not a good Muslim. We'll put you to death. If you convert to Christianity, that's almost a certain death penalty. How would you like to live in a country like that? It isn't that there's no religion there, okay? It's not that there's no religion. It's that it's a dominating, authoritarian, totalitarian religion. And if you think that we don't live in a country that has a totalitarian religion, think again. Everybody has a religion. They do. Everybody has a hope in something. Everybody has some kind of, you know, transcendent reality that they turn to. And so, really, you have. What are you going to do? There was also this young lady who was kidnapped, and uh, they finally were able. I think she was from. Uh, well, she was from the Middle East, but they kidnapped her. The authorities got her back. They forced her to become a Muslim while she was in captivity. So now she's back home. But if she doesn't continue in Islam, she's going to be considered impure, and she's not going to be able to find a husband. She's not going to be able to find a job because she can't be a Christian, and her family was Christian. So how would you like to live in a world like that? I mean, we're not talking about this happened to... This didn't happen, you know, 10 years ago. This happened just the other day. I mean, this is fresh news from Open Doors. A lady shared the gospel and her sons who are Muslims and they work for the state. They got angry with her. They came down to her and told her she couldn't do that anymore. She had to stop. And they got mad at her and they were screaming and yelling at her. And she said, well, you know, if, 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 if you don't want to hear me talk about the gospel, then I don't know what to tell you. And so they got mad at her. They broke things as they left the house. You know, One thing they broke was her heart. Yes. And they didn't care. Okay, they didn't care. We need to know what's going. We need to think about the things that might come upon us because we need to prepare ourselves for perseverance. Because one day we're going to face suffering. I may not, because I'm so old, I'll die. But you guys, that's a different story. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us. I am not going to preach in Daniel next week or for a little while. Uh, Daniel is a very challenging book, and um, I would rather have a better handle on it than I do. And so I'm going to I'm going to break away from it for a little bit, so that I can do um, more work on it, so I can understand it better. So next week we're going to look in Hebrews. We're just looking a passage in Hebrews. Okay, well, let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, since uh, you expose us to various distresses in this world, for the purpose of exercising our faith and patience, grant, I say, that we may remain tranquil in our station through reliance upon thy promises. When storms gather around us on all sides, may we never fall away and never despond in our courage, but persevere in our calling. 
Whatever may happen, may we recognize you as carrying on the government of the world, not only to punish the ingratitude of the reprobate, but to retain your own people in, 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 in your faith and protection and preserve them to the end. May we bear patiently whatever changes may happen to us and may we never be disturbed or distressed in our minds till at length we are gathered into that happy rest where we shall be free from all warfare and all contests and enjoy that eternal blessedness which you have prepared for us in your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know what hymn to turn to. Uh, returning to Psalm 99, Selection C. Psalm 99, 99 C. 99 C. Okay, I'm just trying to find something. There it is. Okay. All right. I'll get out of your way. 99 C. Uh-huh. 